from the Willamette Valley in America's great Pacific Northwest. You are listening to the Ernest Mann Show, and I'm your host, Ernest Mann. No matter where you may be listening in this great, big, beautiful world, we all share. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in or for tuning in again. This is episode number 115, the Hyman Hootman Self-Excitement Company. How one enterprising man brought happiness to the entire world. First of all, I wanted to give a great thank you to the uh, listeners that I have in Ecuador. Your support is very much appreciated. This is going to be a story I guarantee um, is going to be interesting. If for any other reason itself alone, you have probably never heard of this person. You've never heard of this man, but he brought an incredible amount of joy and stimulation yet relaxation to millions and millions of, well, women out there adored him. So anyway, without further ado, here is this very stimulating story. You know, I wanted to quickly summarize and tell you exactly what this episode is about, but there's just so much to it. It's it's difficult. I guess you might call it an inspirational, overcoming the odds story, a true story of an enterprising man. Uh, there's a bit more to it than that, but that's the basic summary. When um, I was traveling much more than I currently am traveling, I had the opportunity to visit Belgium. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that I'm a rich person at all. Um, you know, way back in 30 plus years ago or more, um, you know, airfares were not that expensive and I had worked and saved my own money. And I was basically just wanting to uh, see the world. It wasn't as though I was moving my entire life abroad. I just wanted to see the world. And so I ended up in uh, Belgium. And um, that's where this story is coming from. It's coming from my past, but I believe that there's something to uh, be learned from it today, and I feel it is still relevant, if not entertaining. So, I went off to Belgium, and you have to remember that it wasn't the arduous and absolutely ridiculous tale that it has become uh, due to uh, the necessities of security where you basically almost have to have 
a body cavity anal probe search before you can even dream about getting on the fucking plane. Nope, it's pretty much get up there and you had your money. Hell, you could even pay with cash, which is what I did. And um, next thing you know, you're on the plane and off you go. So that's pretty much it. I flew over and ended up in Belgium. And, uh, well, I was a young man and naturally I want to see the sights. That meant bars, taverns. Anyway, so I ended up uh, in a uh, an old, old tavern. I didn't want anything modern. I wanted, you know, the real deal. I figured I'm probably maybe on a go only going to be able to do this once in my life, so I better make it good. And so I, I, I didn't want the touristy stuff. I wanted, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, the real Belgium. And fortunately for me... <laughs> Um, many of the people there, they, uh, spoke English. So I was in, in pretty good shape. And then, uh, via an unfortunate, but what would end up being perhaps fortunate accident, I met a, uh, very interesting, uh, expat who spoke perfect English and I got very well acquainted with him in the hospital over four or five days because his bed was next to mine. We had plenty of time to talk or mainly he was talking and I was listening. So uh, this is a story about his father and um, his father was a Hyman Hootman. And in case you're wondering, uh, yes, he was Jewish and but Canadian. And yes, it ties into the Second World War. And so once I got the gist of what uh, this fellow who was his son named Paul uh, was telling me, um, I decided to really listen. And that's exactly what I did. So he told me that <clears throat> his father was basically uh, an absolute failure um, in his life uh, prior to uh, he and his brother being born. Um, it's not for, certainly not for lack of trying, um, but essentially in the area, uh, basically a village where he had come from, I forgot the province exactly. It's been a long time. But he was more or less considered the uh, village idiot. Although, as things would turn out, I guess maybe he would have the last laugh and prove them wrong. But this was before they were born, and so uh, they told the story as it had been told to them 
from their father. Hyman. You see, he, uh, as so many young men did um, at that time, he decided to uh, join up with the, uh, the armed services and ended up being on the first wave at the beaches of Normandy uh, with the Canadian Army. And um, he was immediately, they said that he was almost absolutely certain as the, sh the uh, drop-off boats were approaching the beach that um, he was a dead man before he could even, you know, get any anywhere up the beach. And probably this is what, you know, a lot of those guys, uh, when there's, you know, the sounds of the machine guns and the bullets hitting, hitting the boat as it's about to land, you know, that, that was probably a pretty common thought. Um, but he said that if God would be graceful enough to just allow him to survive the landing, this is not even the rest of the, of the war, if he could just make it off of that damn beach, that he would, he would consider it a sign from God and that he would devote himself somehow in some way to be successful. That somehow it must have been intended because he had succeeded at every, he had failed, sorry, at every single thing he had tried to do in his life. But this time he said, <laughs> if he lived, it was going to be different. Well, little <laughs> how different that would end up being, he didn't even know. So as it turned out, um, he made it through the beach. And he was, um, although being Jewish, but if he were Catholic, he would have been doing a thousand Hail Marys because that's what he and, again, probably thousands of others felt. Uh, except when he was finally relaxed enough and there began to uh, begin to have some sense of uh, safety and order, uh, according to them, when they felt a little safe that they, you know, they had taken out the the Germans who were shooting the machine guns, you know, so you, you begin to get some kind of order. He said that his dad said he was on his way to latrine when he was struck on the head and everything went black. And it's like, okay. And this, <laughs> so if you imagine that, uh, <laughs> He said that um, what had happened, apparently, was that um, he had been struck. He was in a, he ended up in a, uh, in a field, uh, a field unit, hospital, whatever the hell they're called, um, to recuperate. He was struck on the head 
with a a large caliber uh, uh, bullet um, that had been fired from apparently some uh, GI uh, that had just who knows in in happiness or joy some of them fired off their guns which they were told not to do for this very reason and uh <clears throat> it had uh it had pierced his helmet but the helmet had slowed down the projectile enough in order for him to not get killed however it did completely knock him unconscious and leave a hefty scar on the very top of his noggin so he said that though although this happened he also considered that another sign because he said he had the strangest dream he had dreams of nothing but totem poles that's right totem poles and he said some of them were shorter and uh not hardly carved at all and he said some of them were very large and very elaborately carved and but he said he was walking through like a forest of these things and he said that the fact that what had happened to him and that he had had this kind of dream then he really knew that some there was something to this there was some kind of calling so um basically um he made it through the war uh relatively uh unscathed after that and um it was um only i guess couple years left in the in in the war at this point and um anyway he made it through and made it through all of europe or whatever was remaining uh until uh you know hitler blew his brains out in the bunker and that only left the war to be wrapped up uh in the pacific and well long story short he came back to eventually came back to uh to canada now <clears throat> this is where the story in my opinion gets really interesting now to you youngins out there um who may not be aware of this plastic as we know it uh today in a million different applica a billion different applications it simply didn't exist i mean it simply just it it didn't exist and you had um things that were like very very primitive plastics um bakelite would be one of them but it's a, a very rigid and very limited form of plastic but it has a very limited application and absolutely you know nothing like we have today and so uh it was not too long after the war 
and we're talking two or three years after that, that plastics came onto the scene. And once that happened, there was a rapid succession from one type of plastic, and then another was developed, and another, and another, and another. And it was around this time that the, the light bulb went off in uh, Hyman's head. Because he figured out, and he remembered, apparently he had remembered that, that, uh, that dream that had been from being struck on the head by a stray bullet all the way back on the beaches of Normandy. When he had the dream, he remembered, said he remembered that dream about the totem poles, and it all, it all coalesced. It all, <laughs> apparently, it just came together. It's one of those, what do you call it, like a aha moment, a, a eureka kind of moment, you know. And so, what he figured out was that what originally had been used or purposed for uh, certain items could now actually be made, manufactured differently because of plastics and because of what plastics can do. Um, now we can enter um, the suns because in uh, several years later, his sons were Paul and Herb. And Paul and Herb um, were basically the sons who were a year apart. And like anything else, in most cases, um, if you have a, a, com a company, especially at that time, there were... Um, there were many uh, manufacturing companies, although you see the huge advantage that Hyman had was that he he pretty much, you know, he had the market cornered. He he had possess possession of this market and, you know, he was unrivaled. And so. You know, to say, um, ex with the exception of, I believe it was, he told me it was around 1952 was a bad year because the things, the, 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 uh, what had been manufactured that they decided, uh, to have uh, electrical versions, uh, you know, that you plug in. And uh, that ended up tragically in uh, at least three lawsuits. And uh, so that was that was bad. But like I said, they were enterprising. And so not to worry, but that was, you know, that was a, a skin of their teeth kind of moment on on this on this deal. 
so I just need to talk about uh, the brothers just for a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but just bear with me on this. It's most interesting. Um, as I said, there was Paul and Herb, and uh, but what uh, Paul told me was that um, I said, well, you know, they're only were a year apart. He told me, and I said, well, where is Herb now? And his response was, God only knows. And that struck me because, I mean, typically, usually, unless something very much went wrong, you know, and it's your brother and, and you're going to be involved in a, you know, a successful company, you'd, you would figure that he, he would know this, but um, apparently that's not the way things had worked out. You see, the father, now that he had an established business, um, of course, he had already, you know, figured out that eventually that uh, he was going to be turning the company over uh, to uh, either one or both of his sons. But um, it didn't work out that way. And that is kind of interesting in and of itself, because this is something really unusual. You know, I did mention that they were Jewish. And it's, it's really quite unusual for Jewish men to change their, their faith. And, but um, that was the case with, with Herb. Because apparently for whatever reason that I can't fathom, um, Herb was complaining that he simply was so dissatisfied with his father's work and basically with the product and basically with the entire lineage and the entire the history of the company and everything to do with it that it was a it was an unbearable uh, conflict of conscience. I just couldn't hack it. So much so, now this is what I was talking about, this is pretty unusual, that he became, he converted from Judaism and became a Rastafarian, I'm, I'm sorry, not a Rastafarian, a, a um, Rosicrucian. Yes, he joined the Rosicrucian order and apparently uh, whatever the hell that was supposed to make complete in his life well apparently that that didn't do it because then in short order he um, became an incurable alcoholic and proceeded to, well, drink himself into oblivion. And after he had um, embezzled, basically um, his, um, his dad had put him in charge, uh, at least to a certain extent, 
of um, company finances and such, and he had embezzled uh, not a great deal of money. He didn't bankrupt the company, but he he definitely embezzled money um, because he he owed money to well. That's the other thing, pornographers. And he owed a lot of money to pornographers for some reason. Um, well, considering things, maybe it's not for some reason. Maybe there is a connection after all. But yeah, he, uh, <clears throat> he, owed, uh, he owed all this money, uh, particularly in uh, his, his, his hangout was, was Monte Carlo, and uh, whatever the hot spots were at that time in, um, around L.A., California. And so, yeah, uh, basically his father had um, didn't denounced him or something. I, I, I don't know that much about I, I don't know that much about the, the Jewish faith, but um, it was something about uh, denouncement or something and, and if you're if that happens without some sort of special process or something, you're basically, you know, you're you're black sheeped from your officially persona non grata. You just can't go home. You know, you're 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 cut off, so to speak. <laughs> and um so I you know I was surprised because um I I, I couldn't believe this because it's uh it's really unusual. It's really bizarre. Can you know considering everything? So as far as um, then uh, I had gotten a, a bit ahead of myself. So anyway, but initially the two brothers were basically being groomed to take to take over this 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 empire, um, which which had all to this point, other than I said the 1952 incident, uh, had stood very straight, very firm. And uh, besides that, the, obviously the father was grooming them uh, for you know the position to you know take things over. But uh, apparently, um, it was the the whole disappointment with Herb was was just was too much. It was too heartbreaking and and such for the for the father um, who by the time that I had just uh, happened by happenstance to be talking to the son, Paul, um, I think he had uh, passed away one or two years previous to that. So unfortunately, this very famous man, who I would have loved to have uh, shook hands with, I, I never did. So... Um, that left Paul, and Paul told me I I had asked him in turn. I'm just like, well, this is this is what uh, this this is it. I mean, what are you doing and and in, in uh, here in, in Belgium? And then he he told me basically that he was uh, investigating new markets and and demonstrating product. And after I thought about it, I was I thought that was kind of interesting. 
uh, demonstrating product. But anyway, uh, yeah, and and you got to remember this was, you know, this was pre-internet, so um, yeah, I um, I mean, you could I I suppose I was I was trying to uh, wrap my head around that a little bit. <clears throat> But, um, yeah, so, um, but that's the story of, um, Hyman Hootman and my understanding of all that, the time, uh, there were some, there were many, and if you want to check out that name, um, you may have to do a little backtracking, but, um, Paul and Herb were, um, very famous and or infamous, if you want to call it that, because of, well, <laughs> they uh, they did some some very interesting things, let's say. And uh, but you'd have to backtrack and go under the name of Hootman, H O O T M A N N. And. Um, Anyway, I got to uh, I got to know him, and he was um, it. Eventually, the the uh, company uh, was turned over to Paul's son, and I uh, am still in communication with him. We're roughly the same age, and I'm still occasionally in in contact with Paul to this very day, and. I tell you all this because, you know, it all goes back to that dream that the father, Hyman, had had. Because remember that I mentioned the dream of the totem poles, and then I told you about the plastics. Because what he figured out was with this new thing of plastics, that the uh, the one huge innovation that Paul had made that apparently had failed in the 50s and almost ended up bankrupting the com company, mind you, was an electrocution that had occurred due to uh, a misuse of the device. And then it was Paul added to the innovation of the product that his father was just ecstatic over, basically. Because what his son Paul had done was introduce batteries. And after this is after the father had figured out with the advent of this new miracle material called plastics, that the, uh, the device could be basically molded into any shape or any color, for that matter. And then, with the introduction of batteries, that is something that actually changed the world, made the world a happier much more satisfied place. Oh, and so if you're wondering what product 
did actually Hyman produce? Well, Hyman Hootman and the Self-Excitement Company developed the first battery-powered modern dildo. I hope you'll stop by my website and throw some food in the fridge. Until Monday, here's some music for you. The Jay Gals Band, Whamma Jamma. I said you're gonna move with the gonna get it all down, get it all night, get it all right, get it out of sight and get it down, baby. Yeah. Where am I jamming? Let me hear you, digger. <laughs>